Welcome to Inside Economics. I'm Mark Sandy, the Chief Economist of Moody's Analytics, and I uh, am uh, joined by my two co-hosts, Chris Dorides and Marissa Di Natale. Hi, guys. Hey, Mark. Hey, Mark. So we're all going to be getting on a plane shortly, headed to Phoenix, right? We're all, you're, you guys are there, right? In Phoenix at our yeah. MA Summit, the Moody's Analytics Summit. Yep. Uh, I hope so, because we're doing the podcast there, so. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I hope we're right. all going to be there. <laughs> That's right. We're, we are going to do in person. I, I, I typically say live, but it, we're always live. It's like in person, we're going to be doing a podcast at the summit. This is a a, a conference, a confab for our uh, clients and and I guess good friends. They're coming into Phoenix and is it a couple days? I think it's for two days, maybe three days even. Three. Three days. Okay. Yeah. And uh, as part of that a conference we're going to put on the podcast uh live with in person with the audience in front and, of a live uh, studio audience live live studio audience yeah that, that'll be interesting to see how that goes what do you think yeah yeah i'm excited about it yeah should be interesting Next, uh, uh, next frontier in inside economics. All right, so. right. We got we need a laugh track and all that kind of stuff <laughs> at some point. Uh, although we, you know, I, I do a fair amount of laughing anyway. I don't think we need any more laughter. Uh, we need to be a little more serious, but, um, I was going to say one other thing. What was it? Oh, uh, because, uh, we're going to be doing the statistics game live and in person in Phoenix. We're not going to do that today in this podcast. We're going to skip that, uh, just because there's a limited number of statistics and we might use them, uh, make it more difficult to do the, the statistics show at, at the, at the summit. But uh, we will do listener questions because, Marissa, you were saying we got a number of good questions that came in from listeners, and we'll go through that. And I'll let you moderate that. Okay. Um, uh, but uh, do you guys look forward to a five-and-a-half-hour flight uh, out to Phoenix? I mean, or or not? Do you look at that with dread? Oh, for you, Marissa, you, you, this is a hop, skip, and a jump for you, isn't it? Yeah, it's a 45-minute flight for me. Uh, yeah. So, What about you, Chris? Do you look at it with intrepidation or like you like I can sit back and – you know, it's a great you, time to focus, and they, I, I've done. I've yeah. written a lot of articles on these flights. Yeah, I have to say because it's, you know, it's uh, there's no uh, interruptions, there are no telephone calls, or you know, if you yeah. don't go on the Wi-Fi, you don't have the <laughs> the emails bombarding you, and it can I can get a lot done during these flights. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm kind of it's weird. I'm kind of looking for. I mean, I. Typically with dread because it's a Sunday night flight to, or afternoon flight to Phoenix, but I'm kind of looking forward to this because I'm going to get five hours I can actually write. Assuming my computer works, I've been just assuming the Wi-Fi on the plane works. Oh no, I don't need the Even Wi-Fi. You that. don't want the Wi-Fi. No, no. Yeah, <laughs> don't get the exactly. Wi-Fi. In fact, I hope now that I don't have Wi-Fi. <laughs> Yeah, because I would pay interferes. a premium not to have the Wi-Fi. Right <laughs> <laughs> I'd pay the airline. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, okay, we got a couple guests, uh, 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 colleagues. We got uh, uh, Mr. Scott Hoyt. Scott, how are you? Good. How are you doing, Mark? And I'm okay. And you've been on the podcast at least a couple times. Yeah, before. twice before. Twice before. Okay. Memorable events or? Oh, uh, yeah, lots of fun. Lots of fun. And, and of course, Scott, you're the you you're like everything the consumer. And we're gonna be talking about the American consumer again in this podcast, particularly with regard to their uh, household balance sheet and particularly on the liability side of the balance sheet on uh consumer 
debt and credit because uh, there's been a very dramatic increase in the growth in uh, debt, uh, uh, growth in debt, uh, household debt recently, at least for certain categories of debt, and uh, some significant increase in uh, delinquency rates as well. So, uh, just want to we're going to dive in here deeply to try to figure out what's going on. So, we, I'm glad to have you on board, and we also have David Fieldhouse. David, good to see you. Thanks for having me, Mark. And you're a, a first, this is a first time for you on uh, Inside Economics. Yeah, long time listener, first time caller. <laughs> oh, really? You're a listener? Oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, de- definitely. I get a lot of work done outside listening to the podcast. If it's a really good one, Lawn's in perfect shape. <laughs> yeah, this is what we were saying. We need, it's an hour and 10 minutes, it seems like every single time, because that is that how long it takes you to cut your grass? About an hour, uh, ten minutes. I don't have a yard that big, but uh, you know, there's, there's <laughs> leaves and other things, right? <laughs> good, good. And uh, you, you tell us about yourself. I mean, your this is your background is ap- certainly apropos to the conversation we're going to be having here. But uh, give us a sense of your background. Yeah, uh, I've been at Moody's for ten years. I, I'm I'm from Canada. I got a PhD at the University of Western Ontario. They have a great economics program up there. Indeed, uh, I was lucky to connect with uh, some experts on who wrote papers about consumer credit and bankruptcy and business cycles. Hmm. And Moody's was looking for people to do this kind of work uh, right after the financial crisis. Uh, and so my dissertation matched up pretty much with the job description at Moody's. And uh, I think I, I think Chris was on my hiring committee. So I convinced him to right? <laughs> bring me along. Yeah. Excellent. So uh yeah, I've been here for uh, uh, for ten years, and it's been a great experience so far. Great colleagues and uh, amazing data. I remember we were we wished we had the data during when we were doing research that I I have access to now. Uh, so we get all this wonderful data from Equifax. Yeah, exp- I, explain that for a second because that's that's really key. I mean, we have a, a I I think we uh, have a lot of insight into what's going on in in terms of household balance sheets because of this relationship. We had we've had for with Equifax for I think twenty years. I think I established it. It could be twenty years now, twenty five years ago. We first started that relationship with the with the credit bureau. But maybe you want to describe that data because that's really key data. Yeah, we get uh, two feeds from Equifax. Uh, I think the one that we look at the most is the aggregated uh, feed of the consumer credit file that Equifax has. So this is uh, balances, delinquencies. Uh, all that type of information, originations uh, by different product categories, uh, origination cuts, term length, credit score bands, and then we get some demographic information, age, income, uh, that type of information. And then the really neat thing that we're exploring uh, over the last year or two has been a loan level version of that. Uh, so we can really track borrowers and figure out exactly what they're doing. And, uh, you know, not individuals, we don't, I can't, I can't see your your credit profile, but uh, anonymized, we can look at that and uh, and figure out what somebody like you might be might be doing. And uh, it, it's, a, it's amazing. We are starting to do all kinds of other things uh, like migration analysis and other type of work with that data. Yeah, I mean that's really I I love that migrate. I mean I love all that data, but the migration data is pretty cool because you can see addresses and therefore you can track address changes month to month. And we've I think we've got data. We're probably getting the February data here pretty soon. So we can see, for example, the number of people that are moving from, uh, you know, the urban uh, core of Philadelphia to the 
you know, to the, to the, uh, to suburbs, exurbs, and rural areas, you know, kind of the net outflows of people, gross, gross inflows, outflows, and net outflows, really, really cool data. Yeah. And, and it's very timely. Uh, very so timely, yeah. that, that's a great thing about it. So, you know, we, we see these zip code movements or, or balances. So uh, yeah, it, it's awesome data to have. We definitely, the, the day it's printed, we, we, Tim and I, we race through it uh, very quickly and, and we love looking at this data. Yeah, so we'll come back. We'll definitely come back to that because uh, uh, I think that'll provide a real sense of uh, the data will provide a real sense of what's going on in terms of household balance sheets. But just to frame this a little bit, um, so uh, it's it, up until recently, I'd say up until I don't know three, six, nine, twelve months ago, I was of the uh, mind that uh, household balance sheets were in excellent shape, uh, both on the asset side, you know. Uh, uh, higher, we had high stock prices, high housing values. You know, people were uh, enjoying some pretty substantive capital gains, and then on also on the liability side, on the debt side, uh, leverage seemed to be well was low. I mean, if you look at o- overall household debt compared to income, or looked at debt service, which is the share of income that's going to servicing that debt, all that seemed relatively benign. You know, no real problem. And then, and in, in I'd say in the last, maybe beginning a year ago, but certainly in the last few months, it's, it, you can really see a very substantive pickup in in uh, in credit growth, uh, borrowing by by households. Uh, not, not so much on the mortgage side, and we'll come back to that, but on the consumer uh, lending side in terms of uh, bank card and consumer finance and uh, auto lending, that kind of thing's been very strong. And if you look at the uh, kind of the overall credit growth, the debt growth, it's it's been very robust. You know, much stronger than inflation, much stronger than income. You know, the uh, debt uh, to income uh, is now rising, and even more significant, there's been a pretty significant increase in delinquency rate. It's still, you know, that's not out of bounds historically, but we're now for a lot of lending categories above pre-pandemic levels. So it feels like stresses are starting to develop here and thus uh why i think it's important to kind of take another look at the balance sheet and ask the question you know whether uh it's an issue or not uh, for the for the broader economy so w- with that as a backdrop uh and i i said a lot and there's a lot to unpack there let me let me turn to chris you first cuz you, you've been looking at this these things for a long time uh uh what do you think what what's your sense of things uh with regard to uh, household balance sheets and and the, and the debt in general. Yeah, I think you characterized it uh, appropriately. If you look at the aggregate statistics right now, actually things don't look so bad. Uh, 9.75% is the debt service ratio. So the amount of money that uh, households have to dedicate to paying their, their monthly uh, debt payments divided by their disposable income, 9.75%. As I should say, that's as of the third quarter of uh, 2022. And that's exactly where it was the first quarter of 2020. So we're right back where the uh, pandemic was. At least we were a couple quarters ago, right? Probably it's it has risen uh, since mm-hmm. then. So I would argue mm-hmm. things are you know, de- certainly deteriorating relative to where we were, but still well below the whatever 13, 13.5% that we had during the uh, Great Recession, some, something along those lines. So but based on that measure, which is fairly core to understanding if consumers are able to make their debt payments right now, 
you know, no worries. But as you mentioned, if you dig below the surface a little bit, then you do see signs of stress uh, forming here. So in particular, if you look at delinquency rates, you see that auto delinquencies and consumer finance or personal loan delinquency rates are now above where they were prior to the pandemic. So that's despite a very low unemployment rate. So that's that's a, a bit of the conundrum here or a reason why uh, a lot of analysts are, are particularly concerned that there may be underlying risks here that the consumers may not actually be as strong as what those aggregate statistics suggest, or certainly parts of the consumer population may not be faring as well as what that aggregate number uh, would say. Outside of that, though, you're right. If you look at mortgage, mortgage is in a kind of a, its own different uh, world. Mortgage delinquency rates are ticking up now, but they're they're still relatively low or, uh, compared to history. So they're off the bottom that we hit during the pandemic, but they're not back up to where they were prior. Uh, so things are, you know, I would I would consider that market to be more normalizing. They were uh, those delinquency rates were depressed an awful a lot by all the government stimulus and the moratoriums that were put in place. Borrowers have a lot of equity in their homes, so the the chances are that they won't default anytime soon. So something to keep an eye on, but uh, definitely in a very different dynamic than what we see in in auto or personal loan. Credit card is somewhere in the middle. It's, it's certainly uh, been growing in terms of volume, and you do see those delinquency rates creeping up. So, they're by my read, maybe Dave or uh, Scott could correct me. They're pretty close to where they were prior to the pandemic, but they are the trajectory is upward. So, I don't see that stopping anytime uh, soon. So, it's very likely that credit card will be next in terms of surpassing its previous peak. So, maybe I'll stop there. So, the picture is that. Right now, things are still uh, humming along. I don't see the consumer credit market as uh, cracking or causing a recession in the immediate term, but certainly it's you are seeing uh, more and more signs of stress. And if there was an uptick in unemployment or uh, a, a worse a worsening in the uh, income uh, growth that we see, you you could definitely make the case for more defaults, more uh, delinquencies, and ultimately that would cut down on spending and and the the broader economy as well. You you I want to focus on one thing you you said. There's yeah. a lot to to, to yeah. cover there and we'll do that. Uh, but the one thing you brought up uh, uh, at the beginning of your comments was the debt service burden. <clears throat> yes. So that's the the share of after-tax income that households must devote to servicing their debt, interest and principal payments to remain current on that debt. Correct. And you're yeah. saying Okay, it's just under ten percent. So ten percent of after-tax income is going to debt service, which, by the way, people hearing that may say that sounds pretty low. But you know, but it, you know, it you can, can talk about that for a second. But it's now back to its kind of. It fell sharply during the pandemic because of all the government support that was received, and it, it, from from the, on the income side uh, support, but also debt moratoriums and of mm-hmm. course student loan payments and uh, foreclosure forbearance and all those kinds of things brought down those debt payments. Uh, you're saying that now we're back to where we were uh, pre-pandemic. In, in the grand scheme of things, uh, historically, that's that's pretty low, right? I still mean, low. Yep. Yeah. Because pre-pandemic, it was low because that's of the right. you know, low rate environment. So that's still pretty low. So you're saying, okay, if I look at that, 
it's it's moving up. So that would be consistent with stress is starting to develop, but it's still pretty low in the grand in the grand scheme of things. Is that is that fair? That's right. I guess yeah. I would just throw out the context of the labor market, though, right? Because we have this extraordinary labor market still, very low mm. unemployment rate. To see this delinquency, to see that debt service ratio rising as quickly as it is, given where we are in terms of uh, the labor market, that that should give us some pause, right? If the if that labor market market were to get any worse, right, that debt service ratio is only going up, right? It's it's not going to get better, right? So, right. Um, Right, that's the cause for concern, Marissa. Let me quickly turn to you because I think at the conference, the Phoenix conference that I mentioned, you're you're giving a session on this very issue. Is yes. that right, or am yeah, I? Yeah, that's right. I, I am. Okay, right. you you are. Okay. <clears throat> yeah. So, what do you think of 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 how Chris laid things out there? Yeah, I think you both you both hit the nail on the head. I mean, okay. it in the aggregate, things look good, still very, very healthy. It looks like we're just kind of getting back to where we were prior to the pandemic in terms of both debt service ratios and in terms of delinquency rates. I mean, for most product lines, they're either just below pre-pandemic rates or in a couple cases now they're they're at or a little bit higher. And those I think are the interesting cases and those that's what I'm going to focus on in my session next week. Um, what we're seeing is the usage of credit cards and personal loans by consumers. Delinquency rates for those two product lines are now a bit above where they were prior to the pandemic. And that's where much of the growth was through the back half of 2021 and early 2022 was this incredible growth. I mean, almost 25% growth in credit card balances outstanding and in consumer loans as well. Mortgages, yeah, like nothing, nothing really to worry about there. I don't think. I mean, there the mortgage service debt service burden is actually below where it was prior to the pandemic, and that had been had been falling for some time. So it's really these lines of revolving credit that are kind of flashing some warning signs. And then we could talk about the auto market too. Um, there's looks to be some stress in the auto loan market, particularly among subprime borrowers. The other thing I'd point out, which is a little unusual, this is a very small part of credit, but uh, home equity has staged a comeback. So Mm -hmm. the usage of people tapping um, home equity lines of credit and and one-time loans has risen again for the first time since the financial crisis. And that's just due to the fact that homeowners saw you know, on average, 40% house price appreciation in a two-year period. Um, And home equity lines of credit and home equity loans, the interest rates on them had been quite low. And so people were able to use those to, you know, pay off other higher uh, debt payments that they may have had. So that's sort of staged a comeback in recent years. So while other things have sort of started to cool off a bit in the back half of 22 as rates have risen, home equity has kept rising, which is a little bit interesting. Yeah, a lot going on there. Hey, yeah. Scott. Oh, I'm sorry. Did you want to say something else, Marissa? Nope. Nope. No. Okay. So, so Scott, uh, big picture, what do you think? Uh, uh, you know, we seem to be all coalescing around this idea that, yeah, things are weakening. Uh Borrowing has been strong, but in in general, at least so far, uh, the balance sheet uh, is is still strong generally. Um, and we're going to come back and 
talk about the under the hood. There's a lot going on there. But what what do you think? Is that a, a fair characterization? Yeah, I, I agree with that characterization. I mean, my biggest concern, as we talked about the last time I was on the podcast, is what this means for the spending outlook, you know, six, 12 months from now. Um, because I think, you know, consumers are starting to run out of room, either room to borrow or access to credit. I mean, the one thing that nobody's mentioned is a senior loan officer survey from the Federal Reserve, which shows a significant tightening in underwriting standards by a large um, segment of of banks. So, you know, consumers may, um, their ability to to grow their credit to finance spending uh, may may shrink down the road. I don't think it is today, but I think it's a significant risk, you know, as we get late in the year. Yeah. So how consumers households are are uh, turning to debt, to cards and consumer finance and home equity to help supplement their uh, purchasing power, their their income, their real income after inflation income because of the surge in inflation has been under pressure. And so they're uh, using uh, the debt to kind of supplement to maintain their spending. And you're saying, hey, how long can that continue particularly in the context of weakening delinquency rates and tightening underwriting standards by lenders. That's what you're focused on. Correct. Yep. Got it. Um, okay. Dave, David, let me turn to you uh, and maybe we can get a little more uh, granular because uh, you, you go into the bowels of this data, as you described uh, and, and get a sense of, uh, you know, what's going on with regard to the trends when you look across income, when you look across age, when you look across other score bands you know, uh, uh, can you give us any sense of, you know, where the credit growth has been strongest and where the stresses are starting to develop in a more significant way, looking around across those different demographic cuts of the data? Yeah, uh, absolutely. Uh, you know, if we, if we look at some of the growth, right, uh, we had a lot of, uh, debt was growth was powered by well-to-do borrowers, right? So these were, you know, people getting mortgages, expensive car loans, right? So, so, uh, even if, when you look at credit cards, uh, you can see prime borrowers growing balances pretty quickly. Uh, so, so that's what, what's driving a fair bit of growth. But with it, you're still seeing the rest of the population trying to keep up. Um, and I like Marissa's uh, phrasing there, the flashing warning signs, because we are seeing uh, quite a few warning signs. So, uh, when when you look into uh, diff- the credit distribution, uh, we. You can see that you know when you look at auto credit cards, um, it's all the subprime borrowers that are really starting to show the higher delinquency rates, right? So uh, the prime borrowers, they, they might be having delinquency rates below pre-pandemic levels, but when you get into the uh, the subprime, uh, you know they're they're getting uh, really high delinquency rates, uh, and uh, you really know, high. You, what do you mean really high? I mean, what uh, well, mean? I mean. Well, we're we're seeing in some product categories, we're seeing 12, 12 year high delinquency rates. Twelve year high, back to financial yeah. crisis kind of. Just highs. just just post just post just coming out of the financial crisis, right? Yeah. So we're not okay. we're not. It's 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 a different world than it was during the financial crisis, right? Uh, it would be hard to imagine we get to that level of delinquency default, but we we are uh, we're seeing some issues. And and prior to the pandemic, we got to remember in some of those product categories, it wasn't particularly great. Like credit cards were showing lots of stress. So it had just pretty much from, you know, 2010, we just saw every year uh, worse and worse uh, delinquency rates for credit cards. Pandemic hit, 
uh, delinquency rates drop, but now we're we're kind of back on trend because of the forbearance. They drop, not right. Forbearance, extra uh, uh, income, Support, stimulus, yeah, right? Lots of reasons there. Yeah. Uh, you weren't spending. You just right. you couldn't figure couldn't out what spend. you wanted oh, to yeah, buy. Good point. Yeah, L- lots of reasons there. Yeah. But now we're. Uh, you know, we've definitely seen some problems. And then when you try to get a, try to tell the story and, and really understand what's causing that, it's, it's really, uh, you can think about it, it's people with less, less means overall are driving some of these higher delinquency rates. Uh, so, we, you know, we were circulating a, an email around earlier this week about looking at the age distribution and delinquency rates, right? So if you look at that, it's, it's the bars that are under 35 that are showing higher delinquency rates prior to the pandemic uh, when you look at credit cards. And then it's it's also some of the older individuals too. So it's not not, not as much debt's concentrated out there, but you know the 75 plus category, uh, some of those older uh, individuals out there, they're showing some stress uh, as well. So I think this is uh, some of the inflation is really eating into uh, to people's uh, you know pocketbooks and, and they are, are showing signs that they're that they can't really make those payments you know if, if you if you have a nice home and a nice job a nice income you can weather inflation but when you get around to the edges of the distribution you're starting to uh definitely see stress there and and i'm, I'm i am quite concerned about it. it's not a maybe a macro issue yet there's not enough debt uh sitting with those individuals but it's it, it's a worrisome sign for the average person uh in, in the country uh, you know when you're starting to see the tails really struggle so when you look to in uh, at the delinquency rates cuz that's the, the window into uh, uh whether folks can manage their debt or not uh you're saying look delinquency rates are up the most for subprime borrowers so these are folks with low credit scores or lower credit scores and, and just for a little bit of context there david in my mind's eye uh, i think the average score is like 720 maybe uh 710 Subprime would is that roughly right? I mean, yeah, the, yeah. I think we're sitting around seven hundred, seven hundred, seven hundred five in in around that. Eight, you know, we. Had, oh, is it still seven hundred? Because I thought it'd been migrating up. No, it's it still seven. Depends on the score and the measure that with, you yeah. use. Which yeah. score you use? Yeah. It's also okay. come back down a bit since it kind of peaked, and now it's coming back down a bit. Coming back down. Yeah. Okay. But anyway, so what? What when you say subprime? Say let's just take seven hundred because that's easy. It, say seven hundred is the kind of the middle of the distribution. What do you consider subprime? Below 660, there's 660. some different definitions by a product category, but I would think 660 and below. And, and what do you call people like Chris when they have a credit score of like 858? You know, what, is, what, do you, what, do you, what do you call Impossible. that? Kind of uh, Impossible. Impossible. Okay. <laughs> Fraudulent. Yeah. Yeah. Fraudulent. Yeah. 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 No, okay. I, I, I mean... Uh, there are lots of people out there like that. I mean, credit scores have, have migrated up recently uh, over time. Uh, it, it's been interesting to sort of track who's going up the most. The people that went up the most, though, I mean, might be, you know, Chris probably figured out a way to get a couple extra points, go from eight, 840 to 845. Uh, but uh, the people that the people that really benefited were uh, the, the subprime uh, borrowers, right? So you could see them, the typical subprime borrower, if you tracked what happened to them, over you know a three-year period, they, they might have had the the average score might have gone up you know twenty points or so. Um, they were the ones that really saw a lot of the uh, credit score uh, inflation overall. But uh, but they're they're the ones that are coming back down. To Marissa's point, you know we we've peaked in terms of credit scores at least right now, uh, and it's going to be the subprime population that is really it's another sign of stress that we're seeing that population. Their credit scores are just going down. So it's subprime. You also mentioned uh, it's uh, younger people 
we I, I badgered you for that as you mentioned that data earlier this week and we saw delinquency by age bucket and it's really the folks in their 20s and maybe early 30s where the they're they're always higher than older uh age groups but they're they've risen they're much higher and they've risen a lot more it appears than uh it has been for the for the other older age groups in in this period so it's younger people uh, you mentioned uh, income, but you don't. We don't really have a good window into income, right? I mean, income is correlated with score, correlated with age, but we we don't really have as good data on the income side. Is that is that fair to say? Uh, no, it, it's definitely improving what we have access to. So, oh, some right? of the loan level data. Uh, Equifax has a scoring model that they use for income. Uh, you know, we're still we're still unpacking that a bit, but the the income measures are improving over time, uh, and, and so we're getting a better view of that. Uh, it, but the message that we're generally seeing is that the the people with lower incomes, whether we've got the best score or some older uh, methodologies that are being used, is that uh, you know individuals you know with, with incomes below let's say $50,000 per year, they're, they're seeing signs of stress as well, right? So uh, it, it's very consistent overall. It's just, you can imagine that if, if you don't have, if you're not in the prime earning years of your life and, and with your prime income, with a prime income in the distribution, uh, the, the rest of the population is struggling. Yeah, and I don't mean to, pre- maybe I'm pressing you too far here, but I'm going to keep pressing until you tell me no mas. But yeah, so <laughs> if I look at, age by income. So if I look at those young uh, households, those borrowers, in a, if I go look at the income of those young borrowers, is the problems most pronounced for the people at the low part of the income distribution by by those ages? Have you looked at that? Today? I have not looked at it, but I would almost be certain that is correct. Almost certain. That'd be, yeah. So it feels like it's, 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 it's partly aged, partly scored, but it's, it's, it's really about income. If I'm kind of lower income, I'm going to be under more pressure given the high inflation. I just don't have the financial cushion and therefore I'm turning to, to debt and I'm starting to run into trouble paying back on that debt. Is that, is that fair? That is a perfect uh, description of oh, what's happening okay. in credit markets now. See how I do that? I get those perfect descriptions or, you know, uh, every once in a while. So, so it's more income and experience really than age. Experience? Yeah, I would say the, the what well, you're picking up with age is lower income and also someone who has not used credit for a long uh, time right if you're if you know yeah. how the system works how to use credit effectively right you're not new to it right you're going to have a better shot at being able to manage your finances got it i'm i want to co- go on to uh you know why we're seeing this in a second but the other thing i want to just ask about um is uh that, that makes me a little nervous is the measured delinquency rate, you, all you do is you simply take the number or the dollar amount outstanding that's delinquent and divide by the total number or dollar amount that's out there, right? And right now, so that's a, you got the numerator delinquent, the bucket is delinquency, and the denominator, you got outstandings or number of loans. And right now we're seeing a very rapid growth in the denominator, right? And the, the number of loans and in the debt outstanding. But despite that, the measured delinquency rate is rising, which doesn't, that gives me a pretty queasy feeling, right? Is that right? Fair, fair to say, Chris? 
Absolutely. Good reason yeah, absolutely. to up okay. your uh, recession odds. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't gone there. We're going to come back to the macro consequences because that's really important. Mm-hmm. And here's the other thing. Um, you, I know you, David, look at the data based on vintage. So you can say, okay, let's go look at all the, say, bank card loans or auto loans that were originated in 2021 first quarter. How are they doing relative to other vintages at the same point in their so-called life cycles, so many months or quarters or years into the, uh, the uh, since origination. And that gets around this, or at least helps to uh, uh, address this issue that I just described with the measured delinquency rate. What are you observing? And I'm, again, I'm pressing you until you tell me yeah. I, no, no, loss, no, but do you, do, what's going on there? Do you know? It's a great question. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the answer is terrible. Those, those vintages, the 2021 vintages are some of the worst in, in recent years. So we, when we compare them to, you know, 2017, 2018, 2019, you know, I, obviously we got to think about uh, the pandemic coming in there, but when we look at the early performance, the first year, year and a half of that performance for 2021, it, it's been terrible. Uh, it, it's definitely the worst crop. Uh, and I think there were a lot of lenders uh, out there who, you know, their job is to extend credit. Uh, you got to find and make loans to certain people. And, and, and you know, everybody looked great at the time, but maybe they weren't as diligent overall about thinking about the prospects to paying that lo- those loans back. So when we look at auto loans, credit cards, consumer finance loans, 2021 has been turned out to be a, a kind of a crummy year for those uh, that crop of into, crop of loans. That's that's interesting, Chris. Any insight there? Why? What's go 2021? I mean, we're just coming out of the pandemic. I mean, the lockdowns and people are just coming out and about. Why would that be such a bad vintage? Yeah, know? it's uh, it's absolutely counter to previous experience, right? 2009 was one of the best vintages ever, right? Because yeah, you, you had you typically you go through the recession, you clean out all the a lot of the bad debt, people are in better shape, and then you uh, the the lending standards are are tight, and you're you're making very high quality vintages. I think what happened this time around is the uh, the score inflation that that David referred to, right? The, it, the average went up overall, and yeah, the the super prime borrowers had improved their scores a bit, but it was really those big jumps at the subprime level. So someone who had a six hundred 620 credit score suddenly looked like a 680 or a 690, right? They made huge jumps because their delinquency rates went way down. They didn't, they weren't spending. So their utilization rates went way down and their scores looked great. They, they improved to a, a large degree. And I think there was competition in the lending industry that uh, David referred to. And I think there were also a lot of models that just relied on scores themselves and didn't really adjust for the dynamics of the um, of the economy, so these lenders saw a, a borrower at the six ninety, and you know, oh, let's let's send them an offer, and you and you're sending offers to folks who maybe aren't used to getting offers in the past, right? When they had their lower scores, and so there was a lot of uptick uh, uptake in the credit, and now as things are uh, normalizing, right, they're realizing the underlying credit isn't as as strong as what the score was representing. That's fascinating. So uh, in the pandemic, because of all the extraordinary support and the fact that people weren't out buying stuff and were saving cash, scores started to rise. uh, And the the person that would have been a 660 back in uh, 
December of 2019 is now all of a sudden a 690 and can qualify to get a loan or a card, auto loan, whatever it is. And they got extended the credit, they took it. And here we are in early 23. And that's when the credit problems are starting to show up. And it's not only that the score inflation, it's the financial pressure that these same households are under given the high inflation, presumably. Yep. I, I, okay. That's, yeah, that's my take. That's and then on, the, on the supply side, on the lender side, yes. right? We were, we were in that low interest rate environment, remember? Everyone was looking for yield anywhere. So they were, they saw consumer credit and the performance was great <laughs> back well, yeah, in 2020, 21. And I think that's what led to a lot of origination. Yeah, I wanted to add to that because, yeah, that that is what we were seeing. I mean, if you think about the second half of 2020, the first half of 2021, delinquency rates were extraordinarily low. The senior loan officers survey said that lenders were easing standards. Um, and so, you know, they were looking for consumers to borrow, especially because their balances were down. And so they were trying mm -hmm. to build back up their portfolios, particularly in the consumer space. So I think they were lending relatively freely and potentially too freely to borrowers who, as Chris said, were, were marginal borrowers who only looked good because they had all the excess cash that they'd received during the pandemic. Makes sense. Hey, Marissa, so anything else to add in terms of what could be behind this uh, erosion and in, in delinquency that we're observing now, the score inflation, uh, the high inflation, you know uh, uh, the uh, uh, the e easing of underwriting by banks during that period. Uh, anything else? That comes yeah, to I mind? would just I would just add the pool of borrowers during this time period was more likely to be skewed toward uh, less credit worthy people mm -hmm. because because we had all of this excess saving, oh. and most of that excess saving was concentrated at the high income and you know middle high income levels those people who may ordinarily have been in there seeking credit didn't have to do that so the pool of potential borrowers not only was their score inflated making them look better than they actually were but the pool that these lenders were were fishing from was made up more of people at the less credit worthy end of the credit spectrum because the people that were higher, more credit worthy, weren't even in that pool seeking credit because they didn't need it. Yeah. And I guess the other point to make on the score inflation is that was in part by uh, government fiat, right? I mean, I, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, as part of the forbearance in terms of uh, mortgage, for, say on mortgages, for, for uh, foreclosure moratorium and forbearance, and this also on student loans, uh, the, the moratorium on, on payments, the uh, in in the laws that uh, were passed during the pandemic to uh, allow for this, they the the law stipulated that the lender should not report to the credit bureau a credit problem that they shouldn't it shouldn't affect the score, and so that really helped to cause the scores to rise, right? Because that, that anyone, the intent was you didn't want to uh, ding somebody because they were going through this very difficult time and it was no fault of their own. But on the other hand, you also brought in people, you, you gave a, a break in terms of the scores to people 
who weren't going to be able to manage even in a normal time. And, and right. so their scores were inflated. Yeah. That's, that's an important point. Uh, okay. Uh, and I guess the thing that makes you really queasy is all of this is happening with a 3.4% unemployment rate <laughs> yes. as low as it's been since 1969. And, what happens? No layoffs. I mean, we saw that again this week, 190,000 unemployment insurance claims, which is a, about as low as it ever gets. There's just no layoffs. Uh, what happens when layoffs just simply normalize, you know, go back to something more typical? I mean, it sounds like we've got delinquency rates are going to rise here meaningfully over the next 12, 18, 24 months under almost any, under any reasonable scenario, even no recession, it feels like they're going to start, they're going to keep rising. Is, and is adding anybody... into adding into that, all of the loans that were originated over the last year or so that we know are poor quality, um, you know, it's not the first 12 months when they're more likely to go delinquent. It's the second 12 months. Um, and David can probably knows those statistics better than I do, but yeah, you're you know, saying the life cycle. You're saying like right. you know, if you look the, through the all the life of this cycle stuff, of, yeah. of all the loans that got originated over the last year says that that things are going to get worse. Hey, David, say take a typical bank card. You know, when does the delinquency rate on that bank card peak? How long after origination does it typically peak? Is it a year? Is it 18, 24 months? Do you know? Yeah, it, you'd want to look around. 12 to 18 months 12 to 18 that, that's months. usually where it peaks um, you know usually okay. you're usually you could pay it back when you get the uh, get the card right it's it takes a little bit of time uh for for things to go off the rails a bit and uh or you've realized that there's been some mistakes that have been made but uh yeah after a year or so you usually get a sense for what the peak's going to be so so those those loans that were originated in 2021 those are now kind of experiencing their peak delinquency based on their uh, where they are in the life cycle. Yeah, yeah, and a little, yeah, yeah maybe in the next six months or so. Next yeah, but, 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 so. but definitely the twenty twenty one. That that the end of twenty twenty one is bad. Beginning of twenty twenty two is bad. I, should, I want to make sure that's clear as well. Uh, and, and we're going to start to see where those peaks hit. That's for Got sure. It. I'll just okay. say I'm I'm looking at the these delinquent credit card delinquency rates by vintage. It the the these early these uh, excuse me the the later originated loans so the ones originated in the beginning of 2022 and the ones originated in 2021 it's almost a vertical line in terms of their delinquencies so they're actually going delinquent oh. faster than you normally see so yeah like mm. if you look at older loans they go delinquent 18 24 months is usually the peak these have gone delinquent like six, 12 months and have peaked. So they're really, they're really going sour, like right away. What's the worst is, vintage, uh, Marissa? What's the Well, worst? 2021, I'm looking at Q1s Q1. back to okay. 2017. Yeah. And so right now, 2021 Q1 looks the worst, okay. but 2022 Q1 is almost matching it within six months of that mm. origination. So it, it's really the past, everything originated in the last couple of years looks looks very bad very quickly. Okay. Okay. So uh, we've been talking about uh, debt in kind of aggregate. <clears throat> There's a lot, of, a lot of nuance and granularity and stories when you look at the different lending categories. We, we kind of alluded to the bank card, uh, consumer finance, kind of what the fintechs are doing, you know, buy now, pay later, 
uh, auto loans, uh, student loans, and residential mortgages. Chris, let me turn to you. Of, of all of those different lending categories, which one makes you most nervous uh, in terms of kind of what it means for the underlying stress the households are facing and what it might mean for the broader economy? In terms that's of their, a tough one, but we, yeah, in we, terms of their current performance, I probably yeah. would focus on the auto, the autos, because that's a large, fairly large uh, portfolio, and those um, there's been um, the the quality of those underwrite of the underwriting there has actually been quite poor as well. So there too, maybe not quite as we're not seeing quite the vertical increase in delinquencies that uh, MRSA is indicating, but that those portfolios are deteriorating really fast. Is that now the asset the values of, are also, you know, projected to come down. So, you know, people are going to be upside down pretty, if they're not already, they're going to be upside down pretty quickly. So, so the auto is uh, driving the increase in auto delinquency is the score inflation, the, the actual inflation and the cutting into purchasing power. I mean, people have to make a choice. Do I, do I, buy the groceries, pay the rent, fill my gas tank, or do I pay the credit card bill on time? Or not the, the uh, auto loan auto, uh, yeah. car, uh, bill on time. And you're saying on top of that is also now we're seeing or have seen vehicle prices, which had gone skyward early on in the pandemic, used vehicle prices where a lot of these loans are going to buy a used vehicle. Those vehicle prices are now st- are starting to fall. So if you bought your used vehicle six months ago, it's now worth a lot less. Therefore, you have little equity, probably no equity in that auto right now. And so that gives you less incentive to continue to pay in a timely way. That That's what you're saying. Exactly. And those are substantial payments as well would be the other thing, right? Compared to a, a, a credit card bill, which might be, well, it obviously depends on the balance, but um, that monthly payment may be a couple hundred dollars. The the auto payment can be very significant because of the prices uh, that we saw over the last couple of years. So people had to finance because they didn't have any option, and those those payments don't change, right? They're they're fixed and they're they're substantial. Yeah, and I guess uh, we know vehicle. It feels like vehicle prices are going to, you know, they're they've stabilized a little bit recently, but I think that's temporary, and we're going to start seeing. Right. Continue to decline, so that's another reason to be a little to be nervous about what all that means for credit conditions. You know, going forward in the auto market, Scott. Let me turn to you. Of all those lending categories, any one of them kind of stand out in terms of your level of concern? Um, I guess I lean in two different directions. Obviously, besides auto, because I agree with everything Chris said, but one is credit card. Um just in the sense that if if delinquency rates get too high and lenders potentially under pressure from regulators tighten standards too much then it could be a real problem for consumer particularly for the marginal borrowers ability to borrow to get a loan and to then keep up their spending um so i worry about that and then the other question i have and this sort of maybe goes to chris is the story that you told for autos, how much does that apply as well to people who bought homes in the last year or two when prices were inflated and now are potentially going to be going down and eating substantially into their equity, especially if they were marginal borrowers to begin with? 
And, yeah, and it's directed the issue there, yeah. of course, is that those are huge dollar sums. No, you're right. Uh, there, there's certainly uh, room to be concerned there. My, I take some solace in the fact that uh, mortgage lending standards, although they may, they may have loosened a bit, didn't loosen all that much uh, during this period. It was still fairly rigorous in terms of the credit score and the income you had to prove to qualify for a mortgage loan. Uh, versus auto, where I saw, I also saw a lot of industry uh, new lenders coming into that industry again, attracted by the, the yield. So I, I worry that there was a significant underpricing of risk in auto. It's possible that occurs in mortgage as well, but I, I just see that as uh, a stronger um, category of borrower in terms of their credit scores, their incomes. I, we're not doing all the crazy type of lending we did in the past, right? Although you do have to discount credit score somewhat, particularly for the marginal borrower, for all the reasons we've been talking about. So that I guess that's the piece that you know makes me wonder if we need to worry a little bit there as well. Yeah, I would say different. You want to look at different portfolios. So FHA, for example, um, which does cater uh, more to the lower income segment, <clears throat> and uh, folks typically do have lower scores there. That certainly is an area we'd want to watch out for. And you do see that delinquency rates and foreclosures are rising in that part of the mortgage market versus the total. So there's definitely risk there. I'm not, I'm not disputing you there. I'm just, and in fact, FHA auto might be more vulnerable. Use going up, right? I think I, you might've mentioned that, but they're, they're, they're off bottom. They're rising again. So oh yeah. FHA. Okay. Yeah. That's Which right. is about a, about a fifth of the mortgage market, uh, dead outstanding. So not inconsequential. Hey, David, I'm a little surprised no one said consumer finance. Uh, you know, the kind of where the fintechs uh, reside and, you know, where you see a lot of those buy now, pay later. Uh, any concern there or not really? Uh, you know, there, there, I think there have been concerns. Uh, I think they've materialized a bit earlier. That was the first category to show signs of stress. Uh, and though, and, and when uh, the cost of capital increased quite significantly for those firms, you, you really saw a bit more pullback uh, and uh, and a little bit more prudence there. So I think they were very nervous. Their, their life cycle on these loans is much shorter. Uh, and and I think you saw a lot of pullback pretty quickly. Uh, so there, I don't have too ma- as many concerns. That, that market is starting to stabilize. The In terms of like buy now, pay later and some of those short-term uh, loans, that, that's going to be very interesting to see how that how that plays out, right? So there's, it's a bit of big growth category. Uh, consumers are tacking on small amounts of additional debt, you know, a purchase here, a purchase there. And we don't know, the whole lending industry doesn't have a great view into that. We're starting to get some reporting to the Bureau on buy now, pay later. But uh, but for the most part, these loans are, are almost just an adjacent risk for the typical consumer. Uh, so so we don't really have a great view into, you know, how how much of those, how much extra debt those, you know, I'm going to be uh, uh, cast this with a broad brush, but like the, the millennials, right, the younger uh, population who, typically gravitates to uh, buy now, pay later. Uh, we don't really know how much debt they have outstanding there. So, you know, even though credit card might've been uh, low in 21, 22, uh, maybe some of that was buy now, pay later. And now we're seeing really rapid credit card growth. And then you maybe you add on buy now, pay later, and then you put a personal loan here. Uh, that's, uh, it's, it's a, it all comes together and it's a, it, it, it can add up and be quite a concern. 
Here's the other thing uh, is student loans. I mean, uh, that's not in right now. There's a moratorium on payments, right? I mean, which has been uh, President Biden put in place when the COVID, when the pandemic hit, and has been ex extending the deadline for uh, renewing those payments uh, again and again. And of course, is trying at this point uh, to get through the Supreme Court his executive order to forgive a lot of student loan debt. You know, what happens if he loses that court case and there is no forgiveness and the moratorium on those debt payments end? That means a lot of the student loan borrowers who have not been paying on their debt now have to resume paying on the debt at the same time that they're struggling with their credit card bills and consumer finance bills. I feel, Chris, that feels, am I got that right? That feels like that might be a, you know, an issue here too in the not too distant future. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. All right. Uh, Marissa, anything to add on that, on the student loan side? No? No, other than it's not looking promising, the forgiveness. So Although I did see, did you see, and I didn't read the press report uh, carefully, but I guess the, is it the Solicitor General of the United States who uh, uh, speaks before the court on behalf of the government apparently did a fabulous job presenting, and now it's not, there's, there's no longer a consensus as to how the court's going to roll. Did you guys hear that? I didn't know. So, the last yeah. thing I saw was that it, it it wasn't looking good for the Biden administration. No, I, so. I think there's some question about that. Now, she okay. probably did a fabulous job making a case. So uh, anyway, we'll see how that uh, plays out. Okay. Let, but okay. <clears throat> Obviously, reasons to be nervous uh, about the credit environment, the household credit environment. Mortgage is a little less so, but in the world of falling house prices, you can't be too complacent. Right. <laughs> and 3.4% unemployment to Scott's point. Uh, you know, uh, got a lot of issues with cars, consumer finance and auto. And so a lot of things to be worried about, but here's the, not taking it to the final step. What does it mean for the, for broadly consumer spending in the broader economy? And one, I'm going to make a case and then hear what folks have to say is that, you know, it's not a, a significant, all these issues are, don't, don't add up to a significant macroeconomic issue, at least at this point in time, because the numbers are too small. So if I add up all the bank card debt outstanding I and add in all the retail card debt outstanding, there isn't a whole lot of that, but throw that in. That's, you know, the uh, the retailers having their own credit cards. Uh, on, and, and then you throw in all the consumer finance. You know, you're talking maybe a, a trillion dollars outstanding. And if you kind of look back historically, take the trend lines and growth, pre-pandemic, extend them out, the current level of debt is not much higher than you would have thought it would have been if there had been no pandemic. Because that debt fell sharply during the pandemic, it's coming back strongly, but still landing in a place that's very consistent with where you would expect it to be if there was no pandemic. Yeah, auto lending is up, but again, that's you know 1.5 trillion, you know, so maybe it's a high, a little bit higher than you would have thought it would be, but it's not, we're not talking trillions of dollars. We're talking, you know, maybe hundreds of billions, maybe ten tens of billions of dollars. Um, student loan debt has actually gone nowhere, you know, uh, in recent years. It's kind of just kind of flat. Uh, so, you know, you, you add up the numbers, the, the dollar amounts of, that are at risk here, it doesn't feel like it's a macroeconomic threat. And then to, you know, corollary to that is the problems, the credit problems are really f concentrated in low income groups, uh, younger uh, people, not, not in folks, certainly not in the top. Uh, high parts of the income distribution, or even in the middle parts of the distribution, the low parts of the distribution. And I don't mean to, you know, uh, 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 belittle that 
the concern that we should have for those folks that are under a lot of stress. But from a macroeconomic perspective, the, the 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 consumer spending is done by folks in the top part of the distribution. So this rule of thumb I have that kind of strikes that point home is that folks in the top third of the distribution account for at least two thirds of the spending, maybe probably closer to three quarters of the spending. So if they're if they're doing okay, the economy, the consumer spending and the economy are going to you know they'll navigate through without a, a pullback. Okay. I, I, that's a, that's a, a big statement. I'm, I'm basically saying, yeah, I hear you on the credit quality is eroding. We got some, you know, uh, further erosion debt ahead, but it's not a macroeconomic threat. Um, uh, uh, Scott, what do you think? Okay, I accept everything that you said, but I guess I want to take it a step further and look at the question. You notice of- that he's always taking it a step further. He's always <laughs> taking it another. Six, 12 months down the road. Okay, exactly. Go ahead. Go ahead. (laughs) Exactly. How, as we get towards the end of this year, how are consumers going to finance their spending? Okay. If credit quality continues to deteriorate and lenders, remembering the financial crisis and under pressure from regulators, cut back, restrict lending standards significantly, which they've already started to do. Borrowing gets very difficult for all but very creditworthy borrowers who may not need to. Wealth is falling. The stock market's going nowhere. House prices are falling. That's going to undermine spending in the, particularly probably in the middle of the income distribution, potentially the high end too. You basically come back to the only source of funding for spending is growth in real incomes. Now you're talking about folks in the bottom part of the distribution though, right? You're not I, talking about well, because there's a lot of excess savings sitting in the rest of the economy, right? Okay. And but I'm also assuming that 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 the amount of excess savings that consumers are wanting to spend is going to diminish significantly over the course of the year. Well, so that, that, but that hasn't been their behavior to date. Well, They're spending the, saving, the money, the, the saving rate's been rising for the last six months. Yeah, but it's still well below pre-pandemic, right? I mean, the amount of sure. excess saving has been declining steadily for the last eighteen months. Yes, but yeah. but if if the if you were to take a ruler to the saving rate over the last six months, by late this year, you'd be back near pre-pandemic levels, and you'd essentially be saying that there's no more drawdown of excess savings. Okay. Fair enough. So I'm presuming that, again, by towards the end of the year, the excess savings that is available in consumers' mind for spending is not large. What about this, though, Scott? If I look at real incomes, you know, after inflation okay. incomes, they are now rising and they've been rising for, you know, since last yes, summer. That, but that's, that is exactly my point is that consumer spending will be at that point entirely dependent on real incomes. Not a, so, again, they're, they're going to, you're saying they're not going to draw any down any more of the savings. I am. That's I'm, your, that's a working assumption. On working assumption, or okay, at, le- at okay. least, at least very, at least not enough to materially contribute to spending growth. I mean, yeah. even if, if if the saving rate levels off at five and a half or something like that, and yeah, there's some drawdown. I, I, I think this is the, the Amish and Scott talking. Uh, you know, <laughs> that's, that's that, that is not the rest of America. They, they are spending that XA saving. 
Uh, well, but, uh, but, but look yeah. at the trend in savings. I mean, yeah. I don't know where that stops. And, yeah. you know, and does, as you know, those saving rates are going to be revised again. Well, a, yeah, a gazillion oh, no, times. Yeah. But, yeah, but anyway, but I, I, I hear I, you. I'm, I'm raising you. a concern anyway. Yeah, raising a concern. Yeah, fair and enough. and if the if the Fed raises rates enough to slow the job market as much as we say they're going to, then even with lower inflation, real income growth is not going to be much. Yeah. And so my question is, when we get to nine, 12 months from now, where is the funding to sustain spending growth coming from? And it wouldn't take much of a shock or a blow to the system. And, you know, what comes from, well, there's a little bit there to know there isn't anything there, um, you know, could happen. Yeah. And I guess if inflation doesn't come in, then. Yeah. yeah. Inflation doesn't come in. You're, you're getting higher rates. And, yeah. and of course, you know, if you. If the economy, you know, it keeps going back to that damn inflation. If inflation doesn't come in, the Fed steps on the brakes harder, interest rates go up. It's right. going to hit the job. It's, we go in and right. then we got but some real The point is, if headaches. we don't get a significant slowing in job growth, yeah, then we're, you know, either the Fed's going to be raising rates more or there's something going on. But if we get a significant slowing in job growth, you know, if we're down to, let's say, 50K a month on jobs, you know, and inflation is down to what three percent. Do you really have much real income growth? Right, right. Okay, that, that's a, that's a, that's a good counter, uh, Marissa. What do you think? I I kind of agree with Scott, and and also that we know interest rates are going higher. I mean, we know the Fed's going to do at least one more rate hike, maybe up to three more. So. All of this in the context of a higher rate environment, which makes all of this revolving credit even more expensive for people that have high balances, low income, and are more vulnerable to a slowing in the economy to begin with. So how how do people that are now paying, I mean, I don't even know, know what it is, 25% on a, a credit card you know, flash forward nine months, what are, what are the rates going to look like on this revolving credit? And they, they, I assume will have drawn down any excess saving they have at that point. And credit will be not only tighter, but a lot more expensive. So I have a lot of the same concern that Scott has now, just to because I'm an economist to buy a little bit of that back. But can I just, again, going back to my earlier point, it's not a lot of dollars, right? I mean- Well, that is what I was going to say next. Okay, fine. Okay, fair enough. So why is it different from like the financial crisis? You should let me play your other side. There it was was mortgages, right? And that is 75% of all of the debt outstanding or something, something huge like that. I might be off, but it's something like that, right? So- there, when you have things going belly up, that was catastrophic to the entire economy just because of the sheer size of it. Now, now what we're looking at is something that's a much smaller percentage. And if we think the vast majority of mortgages are okay, really, it's really only the people that bought houses in the last couple of years that have real risk. 
you know, to delinquencies or foreclosure. And that's very, very small compared to what we saw in 08, 07, 08. So yes, I agree. I think there's a lot of risk out there that I'm worried about, but I think it's a smaller proportion of the total economy than it was if we go back to the 08 recession. So I don't think we're looking at anything like that in terms of the economic impact, but I wouldn't discount what may happen over the next 24 months. Yeah. I mean, cause on the mortgage side, I mean, people have locked in those low rates, right? That's they're right. Refi- and they're not going up. There's that's right. the average coupon and an outstanding mortgage is 3.5%. And that's not changing. And that, and just to give context and I'm just tell me if I'm wrong, but I'm going to fire it off. $800 billion in credit card debt, maybe 200 billion in consumer finance, 1.5 trillion in auto, 1.5 trillion in student loan debt, and probably 12 trillion in mortgage debt, first mortgage and home equity. Just to give you context, that's kind of the the balance sheet, I think, roughly speaking. Chris, uh, and then I'll come to you, David, uh, on the macro. Uh, anything I want to add there? Uh, you know, wh- where do you are you lending more on the pessimistic side or the optim? The pessimistic is led by Mr. Hoyt. The <laughs> optimist is led by uh, Mr. Zandi. What what do you think? Are you leaning more pessimistic or in in regard to this particular issue? I know I'm not asking about your general state of thinking, but you know, or your or your mood. But on this issue, where are you landing? Uh, as usual, a little bit of both. Right <laughs> on the uh, optimistic in the sense that I don't see this as a, a financial crisis. Right. So to Marissa's yeah. point, right the 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 issues are are not don't, don't are certainly not apparent in the in the mortgage market so the issues that we're talking about they're really in these smaller markets so unlikely that banks would uh uh have to take a lot of losses or to the and certainly they won't have to take losses given their capitalization rates that would push them uh over the edge so i i don't see that as a as an imminent threat. And obviously anything could happen, but I don't see that playing out as a, a repeat of the great financial crisis. But in terms of the spending outlook mm-hmm. and what we see, I'm, I am sympathetic to to Scott's view in terms of uh, what the future holds here. And I might add, the one thing I might add to, to Scott's argument is just uh, some of the, uh, pu- the demand that we've already pulled forward, right? So uh, some of that durable good spending or other spending we did during the, mm-hmm. the pandemic, that's not going to be repeated anytime soon. So that will also would call for some weakening uh, in spending growth going forward. And with higher financing costs, right? It's going to be difficult to see that consumer really uh, revving up their spending and producing a lot of uh, additional out or contributing a lot to, to output going forward. So I'm going to turn to you, David, but I, I'm going to guess you're on the lugubrious side. I mean, anyone who has like a Moreau painting behind them, is that Moreau, by the way? Yes. Them? Yeah. Yes, it is. Yeah. Yes, I, I love Moreau, but you know, I always get very, uh, very uh, morose when I look at Moreau. Yeah. I'm not sure why. Uh, so I'm guessing you're going to come down on the, on the on the Mr. Hoyt side. Yeah, I I, I will. Uh, uh, I, I, I you know I, I might be a bit biased because I damn work Canadian with, uh, risk risk models. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, no, I think uh, I think this will be a drag. Uh, you know, when we looked at the. The data that we got from credit uh, from Equifax today, uh, bank card balances have grown year over year. They're at twenty one percent. It has not rolled over yet. We thought we thought it was about to roll over, and then to Marissa's point about uh, all the high, it, it's really expensive. That debt is expensive. Now we're dealing with the average uh, interest rate 
a balanced weighted calculation for credit cards is over 20%. You, it, you can't have 20% uh, financing cost and, and grow 20% year over year. Something has to give. The, the, there's the additional, spending that additional dollar uh, just is getting more and more costly. So I think it's going to be a drag for the next year and, and, and bars are going to run up against credit lines and it's going to be a problem. And then it, this will spill over, not just to, you know, the spending channels, some of these credit cards are used to support small businesses and other channels as well. So I think it's, it's just going to be sort of a, a drag overall and just financing uh, credit availability is just going to be a problem throughout the whole year. And there, there's just a lot of uncertainty out there. Uh, so I, I'm a bit pessimistic and I actually talked to uh, uh, one of my clients, they had grew in the auto space year after year after year, very aggressive growth. They are just exiting auto finance altogether. They said it's too uncertain. That's what their investors are saying. It's too uncertain. So they're just going to park their assets somewhere else. And we're just going to see sort of tight, tight lending standards. And it's going to be uh, costly debt going forward in, in 2023 and just a lot of uncertainty out there. And until that uncertainty resolves itself, I think it's going to, you know, household finances are going to be a drag on the economy. Yeah. Well, yeah. Have a great I, weekend, I, everyone. <laughs> 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 yeah. I, I mean, no argument. It's going to be a drag. It's just a question of how big a drag, uh, you know, is it, uh, is it going to take us down, uh, you know, kind of drag, but, um, but yeah, good points. Um, we're, we, I, I thought this was going to be shorter. It never is. It's always the same. <laughs> you say that every time. <laughs> yeah, I know. But let's take one question. I, I think any, anything else on the, on that, that was a wonderful discussion. We covered a lot of ground. Uh, anything else anybody wants to add before? Because I think we want to take one listener question before we call it quits. Uh, uh, anything? No, hearing none. Uh, Marissa, you want to give us one of the, because you said we got a, a, a number of good questions this uh, this week. We uh, did. And actually one of the ones I was going to read, which was tweeted to you, we oh. just answered, which was the impact on the economy and the consumer because of these variable rate products, right? They tweeted and, that and to what? me? How, how come you know it and I don't know that? Should I know that? Because Sarah sent it to me. Oh, Sarah. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Sarah's my assistant or more than my assistant. She kind of does everything. So she keeps you in line. She keeps, keeps everyone in line. But uh, Okay. Yeah. So this is, this is, that was sort of the one topical, topically relevant question we had. So this is a switch gears. Oh, we're switching gears. Okay. Question. Fair, okay. Fair yeah. Okay. Because we don't have another question about this topic. Um, so this is about inflation. Actually, there's two really good ones. Mm. Do you want one on monetary policy or or shelter inflation? Let's okay, we're gonna do both quickly. Do do the do oh we can't do both quickly. Okay. Uh, what, what, Chris? What do you want to do, uh, David? Any, what's your preference? Shelter is very interesting right now. Let's I think. do shelter. Uh, shelter. There, there we go. go. David wants shelter. Fire away. Okay. Um, so this listener wanted to ask a question regarding how rent feeds into the CPI calculation. Okay. So um, he says, and now I didn't verify this, so so hopefully somebody else can. The way the BLS calculates shelter, rent as a primary residence contributes only about seven and a half percent of the right. total shelter weight of the CPI. It, the CPI, right? And we know that total shelter in the CPI is 
about a third, a little higher than a third, right? 30, 34%. Yeah. Yep. So um, he said, listening to your podcast, I had a feeling that you're putting much more weight on the fact that, you know, the lease signings, right, are a lagging indicator in the CPI. So it could take 12 months for any changes in the price of new leases to show up in shelter. So he said, am I right to assume that only that seven and a half percent of rent is the lagging indicator and that the rest is coincident or leading? Do, do you understand? So so basically he's saying- He's saying, yeah, the, the, the we're using market rents. They've gone flat in saying that that is going to translate into slower cost of housing services. But for rent of shelter, what about the homeowner's equivalent rent? The other- component, which is much larger, which is, I think, 25.5% of the index. Uh, so so how does that relate back to, to rents? Uh, right, personally? because presumably the OER is not lagging in the same way rents is. Owner's equivalent rent. Yep. The, yep. Yeah, right. Chris, do you want to take a crack at that? Uh Sure. So the I would say it is, it is in a the uh, the approach yeah. is similar. Uh, for the owner's equivalent rent as well. It's also survey, it is survey based in terms of the expenditures. And I'm, now I'm really going off of memory here, but the actual uh, rent that is used is from the same uh, rental survey. So this, um, that goes into the the uh, primary, the rent of primary residences in the CPI. So both measures, you'll actually see that the two measures are quite highly correlated, right? So the weight, um, the, you know, splits it splits it out, but the effect is is the same. Does the only thing is, that, yeah, no, it's, it's, it, the answer is that the the rents are affecting both the rent of shelter and the homeowner's equivalent rent. Interestingly, in the last month, when the uh, BLS, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, updated its methodology for the CPI, they do this once a year. They did do two things that are relevant here: one, they increased the weight on housing. It was it's actually higher now by about a point percentage point than it was previously, and secondly, they I think they added more survey uh, based information on single family rental. So you know renting a single family home because that gives you a better sense of you know rent for uh, owner homeowners equivalent rent. So they are they've improved the kind of the information they're using to construct that measure. But as Chris points out, they're you know, highly, highly correlated, very closely correlated. And so the fact that market rents have gone flat to down here in recent months will translate through into the lower cost of housing services, both for rent of shelter and homeowners of equivalent rent, which add up to 34, now 34%, I think, maybe it's 30, a little even over a little 30, over 34% of the CPI index. By the way, it's meaningfully less for the consumer expenditure deflator. I, you know, I don't know that I think it's closer to twenty percent of that index. I, I don't. I'm, I don't. I'm sure I don't have that exactly right, but that could, kind of gives you order of magnitude. So hopefully that it, does that answer the. Do you think that answers the question? Marissa? Yeah. Yeah. I think okay. yes. Yep. Okay. Do There's you want nice to write up on the BLS website? Oh, is there? Oh, wants okay. to look. Did Did we get it right, Chris? I hope yeah. So. Well, that's my memory. But okay. <laughs> yeah, okay. I remember okay. going to yeah. that site and they explain very yeah. uh, clearly what. How they're calculating the owner's equivalent rent versus the primary rent, the different series, the surveys they use. So, if yeah. you want more info, it's there. All right, real quick. Uh, well, we'll try to do it quick. The monetary policy question. What okay, was that? this is a good one. So, um, St. Louis Fed President Jim Bullard 
was quoted as saying, quote, this is the age of forward guidance. And so the long and variable lags argument doesn't make as much sense as it made decades ago. The listener wants to know what is your opinion on that? So this is referring to the time it takes from when the Fed, you know, changes monetary policy, makes a move in the Fed funds rate, and when that actually feeds into economic activity. Do you want me to take that one, guys? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Sure. Uh, I agree. Uh, you know, with the forward guidance, that is the Fed officials are through speeches, through minutes, through statements. FOMC statements, making it clearer to everyone what they're going to do with monetary policy, both in terms of rates and in terms of their balance sheet. That 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 means that what they're doing gets embedded in so-called financial conditions, like immediately. You know, you watch. You know, when they give a speech, when Powell gives a speech or is testifying in Congress. You can see the stock, the bond market, and the stock market going up and down based on what he's saying because they're listening to the guidance he's giving with regard to future monetary policy. So, stock prices, bond uh, yields, uh, foreign exchange, the value of the dollar, underwriting standards, er everything is getting affected much more quickly, almost immediately, and that's the it's the financial conditions which are the link between what the Fed's doing with monetary policy and what it means for the economy, the real economy. Uh, and so that that transmission of that of that information to the marketplace and to financial conditions is much faster. Therefore, uh, the lag between shifts in monetary policy and its impact on the real economy probably aren't as long as and aren't as variable as they have been historically. So in fact, I would so far say, go far as to say, that the uh, maximal impact of the rate increases the Fed has put in place so far are, are probably behind us. Uh, you know, they probably occurred in the fourth quarter of last year. And unless monetary policy deviates from the forward guidance that the Fed has articulated to us, the impact of monetary policy on the economy is going to fade here pretty considerably as we move through the year. And, and is is one reason to think. That the economy won't go into if the economy didn't go isn't going into recession now and it's not I mean you can see that in the job market data less likely it goes is going to go in the future unless this isn't the end of the rate hikes unless inflation right. isn't coming in and they have to double down again and start giving guidance that they're going to raise rates to six percent right now they're closer to five we're going to six or six and a half financial conditions will tighten again stock prices will go down bond yields will rise and then we'll go into recession so. In my mind, the most likely scenario is no recession, but you know, I'm not going to argue with anyone who says recession next year. I will argue strongly with anyone who says recession this year, but or certainly any time in the early parts of this year, first half, middle parts of the year, that's just not happening. But you know, may, maybe the the uh, I would concur that there are you know increasing risks for next year, but that would require the Fed to change forward guidance again. But I, it's, but bottom line, I, I agree with this. Uh, with what he said. Anybody want to add to that or take umbrage with that? I, I agree with you fundamentally. I guess the one question I have is for both consumers and businesses, they have debt outstanding that's fixed rate, but that rolls over. And so that as it rolls over, the rate, the past rate increases suddenly impact their budgets. So I think while I agree with you that the largest impact is immediate, it's not drawn out. I think there still is a tail to that 
that you may have, I wonder if you may have understated a bit. Yeah, no, no, I, I agree. I'm not saying that there, there's, it's still a drag, no doubt about it. It's just the drag is quickly becoming less powerful. The other thing I'd say, though, idiosyncratic to your point, is the actual amount of debt that's going to roll over is actually quite modest in the grand historical scheme of things, at least in 2023. So if rates do start to come down in 24, that that rollover, so-called rollover risk becomes less of an issue. I mean, it's not that big an issue this year compared to, you know, other uh, recessions when mm-hmm. uh, 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 you had a lot more debt rolling over than you do in 2023. But great question. Those are great questions. And uh, thank you, listeners, for those questions. And we uh, clearly uh, would like uh, you to uh, continue to pass those along. Uh, they're, they're really in, uh, important and insightful and love addressing them. So thank you for that. Uh, and um, okay, guys, uh, like it always is the case, this is longer than I expected, I, but only because it was a wonderful conversation. It was great to have David first time on the podcast and, and Scott three times and um, a bit of a gadfly, I'd have to say. So we're going to have you back, buddy. Uh, so uh, I look forward anyway, to it. Any, any other comments before we part ways here and uh, get on a plane to Phoenix? If you want more, you know, you got to catch Marissa's session on uh, on Monday. At on the Monday. Summit. Is it going to be taped? No, I think is, it's is just it? live. You have, oh, it's you live. have to be you there. Be there. Got to be there. Got to be there. Scottsdale, Arizona. Alrighty. Take care, every, care everyone. Have a good, uh, good week. And, um, We'll call it a podcast. Bye-bye.